Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 303 being recorded on Thursday, February 23rd. 2023. That's a lot of threes, Scott. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back. Jason Scott Show listeners. It could have been worse. We could have done it on two, 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 three. So there'd be a lot of twos. So we broke up the twos with some threes. I believe that was episode 223 was on that. Yeah. Uh, I had, I am not a big sports ball person, but I watched the Super Bowl every year for the commercials. And I had, I know you're uh, the grand poobah of all things uh, advertising. And I had an ad question for you. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Uh, You've come to the right place. Hit me. What is Taimu and why is it not the same thing as wish.com? Uh, that's a great question. I can only partially answer. Um, so Timu is a uh, e-commerce site. In, in uh, as far as I know, at this point, only in the United States of America, it's owned by Pinduoduo in China, which often is called a PDD. And depending on how you count, PDD is the second or third largest e-commerce site in China. In China, it's a super interesting uh, gamified model where, like. You get your friends to go in on the deal with you and it, it drives your deal cost down. So everybody saves more when you all buy together kind of thing. So it's a, like a group buying. Used yeah. To be called gamified social shopping. Exactly. Um, and so it's super interesting and they're doing really well. So they launched an e-commerce site in the U.S. It appears that it's primarily uh, a catalog they built by aggregating a wide variety of different uh, producers in China. Um, and it does have very much of a wish vibe. Like it's a lot of extraordinarily inexpensive apparel, um, and, and, uh, you know, inexpensive tchotchkes that you probably didn't know you need. But like if you start browsing the site at 4 a.m. on a Friday night, you're, you're gonna, uh, end up making some ill-advised purchases. And then it seems like everything drop ships from factories in China, uh, via U.S. posts. So they, uh, if you remember back in the day, Wish was like very slow shipping, like two to six weeks. Uh, uh, Timu typically quotes six to eight days. Um, they launched in November. I ordered a couple shirts, uh, and they promised me like eight day delivery and they actually arrived in like five days, uh, to the United States. Um, wow. impressive. yeah. Yeah. So it was reason- via U.S. post office in the U.S. part portion, at least. Um, and you know, there's this international postal, treaty that probably meant it was super inexpensive for, for uh, Timu to ship it via U.S. post office to the U.S. Um, but what was interesting to me is like to give you an idea of how cheap this stuff is, the, I ordered a dollar shirt that was 40% off with free shipping. So uh, literally a 60 cent shirt uh, delivered from China in five days. Cool. Is it like Wish where 80% of the business is hair extensions? Yeah, so I uh, I don't have a break. It is a lot of that, like, it's a lot of, like, USB accessories and stuff. I do think it's more heavy on apparel. Um, and I, I have talked to people that are more hip and in the know than me that think there's, like, uh, that, you know, it's it's very um, short-term apparel. It's it's kind of disposable apparel. So there all the usual caveats about uh, being an ecological disaster probably apply. Uh but I have been told that they have that they like have some interesting on trend styles and things on that that like for some demographics it's the the apparel selection is appealing. Um, but what I do know is they launched in November, and uh, when I looked at the year in and it, it's mostly on a mobile app. When I looked at the year in app downloads, it was the eighth most downloaded shopping app on iTunes. So more downloads than eBay, for example, um, over the year. And Timu was only in there for two months. Um, and, and so it's kind of funny. I'm a little embarrassed. I, I, uh, I posted some stats on LinkedIn about mobile apps and I said, and don't sleep on Timu. It looks like they're running fast. And then a week later, they, they ran that Super Bowl ad 
that you saw, um, which is certainly going to goose their downloads more. And literally right before the game, I found out that my company, Pubasis, actually produced that Super Bowl ad. So it may have seemed like I was promoting a client, but in fairness to me, I didn't know they were a client when I, um, when I mentioned it. Cool. Shouldn't you know who your clients are as a chief digital retail strategy officer? I should as a, a first a first world problem <laughs> in your business is when you have too many clients to know. Them. <laughs> oh, you're forgiven. I guess. Um, or maybe that's just a sign of a bad a bad uh, employee in my case. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, holding company like Pubasis, we're a federation of agencies, and most of the agencies do their own thing. So this is you know a cool creative agency that we have, uh, Sachi and Sachi, out of Los Angeles. Um, and sure enough, they did reach out to me to say, hey, we have a commerce client and we'd love for you to come talk to them. Uh, check out their Super Bowl hour in the next, their Super Bowl ad in the next hour. And so that's how I, how I found out they're a client. Thank you guys and very much. Like, and you're like, I totally predicted these guys would shoot up the charts. I did. I did. I tried to take credit, but seemed like shockingly, not everyone in my company follows me on LinkedIn. I know. <laughs> should be over, should be like part of the onboarding. Sometimes I think it should, but then other times I think of how many times it's probably saved my career that like important people at work didn't see something I, I said on LinkedIn. <laughs> so I think on the aggregate, I'm going to stick with it how it is. Cool. Any other uh, trip reports or anything to go into before we jump into some news? I know you're chomping at the bit to talk about some data. Yeah. So it is obviously, uh, well, I guess it's always trade show season, but this feels like a special version of trade show season. Um, next week is Etel West. In Palm Springs, which uh, is usually a good show, but for sure a good boondoggle uh, if you're trying to get out of the Chicago winter in February. Palm Springs is a good a good place to go. Uh, so I'll be going there, and I have lined up a couple guests uh, uh, for folks to listen to in the in the subsequent weeks. Um, and then the end, so that's the end of February. The end of March is Shop Talk, and so I'll be uh, giving a talk at Shop Talk and. And uh, talking to some uh, folks there too, so so a couple of cool industry events on the on the horizon. Cool. So we're gonna have a little gap, and then we'll have some uh, a lot of show reports to go over, I guess. Exactly. Cool. Well, one of the things we wanted to start today was uh, we finally got the last piece of data from 2022 from the U.S. Department of Commerce. Walk us through what your magic Tableau data machine is telling you. Yeah, yeah. So mid-February, uh, U.S. Department of Commerce publishes this quarterly report on e-commerce. And so the Q4 data from last year came out in mid-February. Um, and so now that we have Q4, we can see a whole year. So in 2022, U.S. Uh, uh, e-commerce sales were $1 trillion, uh, $33 billion in sales. So the first time We've officially exceeded a trillion dollars. Um, Yay. So that's kind of cool. Uh, what's, I guess, slightly less cool, depending on where you stand, is the growth rate. So that trillion dollars is 7.4% more than 2021, um, largely because 2021 um, was a like pretty astronomical year. But, but to put things in perspective... Uh, over the last 10 years, the normal growth rate for e-commerce is 16.4%. So 7.4% is less than half of what our traditional growth would be. Um, and it's actually the slowest rate of growth basically since e-commerce happened. Um, so, so 2022 was not a, uh, a, a stellar year for e-commerce growth. Um, now when you look at that three year stack, you say, how much did e-commerce grow since before COVID? Uh, it's up a lot. It's up 81%. Um, and, uh, you know, at a trillion dollars, uh, total retail sales are about seven trillion. So e-commerce ends up being 14.6% of all retail sales. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about what percentage of core sales it is because like people don't tend to buy gas via e-commerce until Spiffy starts selling gas. Um, <laughs> And until recently, people really weren't buying cars online. So a lot of, we could debate the merit of this, but a lot of people still have this definition of core retail, which doesn't have auto or gas in it. And so if you take auto and gas out and you, you say that trillion dollars is 21.5% of core retail, which makes the U.S. about the third or fourth 
highest e-commerce penetration country uh, in the world. Um, obviously, I get a lot of these uh, oh, e-commerce spike during COVID and then kind of regress to the mean. Um, but uh, you know, if you if you look at the e-commerce dollars uh, growth, uh, we're thirty six percent above what we would have forecasted before COVID started. And we've, we've sold like 275 billion a year more than we would have expected to sell this year. So over the three years, uh, e-commerce, um, has, has uh, grown quite a bit and remained high. Um, but what is true and worrisome about 2022, it's the lowest rate of growth we've ever seen. And for the first time since e-commerce started, retail actually grew faster than e-commerce. So the, the the total retail growth number for last year was 8.2% versus the e-commerce rate of 7.4%. So that's an interesting backdrop as we start to get all these um, uh, uh, Q4 earnings reports uh, flowing in. Yeah, and that's really just, you know, it's a reversion to the mean, right? So we had a surge in e-commerce. So e-commerce is more coming down more so than Retail surging is that if we charted that out is that what we would see? Uh, no, like e-commerce has not surged as <laughs> I mean retail has not surged as much as e-commerce has come down. Um, yeah. So yeah. So like on the whole, the three years of the pandemic were very good to retail and very good to e-commerce. Uh, um, the when they happened was slightly different. E-commerce's biggest year was the first year of the pandemic, and retail's biggest year was twenty was the second year of the pandemic. So when you're looking at year-over-year -year sales, um, e-commerce is comping against a big number on the numerator, while the denominator suddenly got a lot bigger uh, for retail. And so it, when you look at it as a percentage of retail, it definitely looks like it regressed to the mean. But when you just look at net dollars people spend in e-commerce before and after the pandemic... We both we spend a lot more money at retail than we used to, and we spend a lot more money on e-commerce than we used to. And so the spoiler or the fear is, is that the new normal, um, or did we just pull in a bunch of demand, um, and that bodes poorly for twenty twenty three? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, some tea leaves to help us kind of parse through that. We had some uh, interesting earnings. First of all, we wanted to chat about Amazon's fourth quarter. Uh, the way I would kind of, we didn't do a show on this one because it was really not that much to talk about, to be honest with you. So they came in just, they had dramatically lowered uh, over the last couple quarters, they've dramatically lowered the the back half of 22. Um, so they the Q4, they slightly beat that, that new lowered expectations. Uh, and then their Q1 guidance was in line with a little bit lower than what Wall Street was expecting, but not enough to be super material. Um, one thing I thought you would find interesting is they took a, about a $3 billion charge on restructuring. Uh, there was, uh, they had announced they had laid off 18,000 people. I think most people saw that. Um, and that was 640 million, but, uh, part of the charge was 720 million to impairment at fresh and go stores. I thought you would find that interesting. And I guess they had, I guess those are the ones they must have planned a bunch of openings. And now they've got all this kind of like, you know, they're kind of half pregnant with this bunch of real estate, a bunch of stores they want to launch. And then they, they I think they've paused that. Um, and then one that was interesting to me is we work a lot with these Amazon DSP companies. Um, and I've often wondered who insures them because they banged the heck out of them. Uh, and Amazon increased their reserves uh, for self-insurance and their transportation network by 1.3 billion, uh, which I thought was, was interesting given that we see these things just 90% uh, chance if you see an Amazon Prime van, it's got uh, a fair number of dents and dings on the side of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a hard gig for a van. Although there probably are no easy gigs for a van. Yeah. What do you think about the fresh and go impairment? Yeah. So the grocery story is interesting, right? Uh, uh, Longtime listeners will remember Amazon kind of uh, retreated from most of their non-grocery retail concepts I want to say a quarter ago. So they kind of, they closed all the bookstores. They closed the, uh, the five star stores. Um, and, and they kind of said, Hey, we're re, we're, we're revisiting our brick and mortar strategy. The one aspect of brick and mortar that they, uh, continued to operate were these grocery stores that are called fresh and these, uh, convenience stores or grab and go food stores that are the Amazon go stores that just walk out technology. Um, and, 
you know, grocery super important. I talk about it all the time. It's like the second biggest category of, of consumer spending in retail. And it's one category where Amazon hasn't done very well. Um, arguably Whole Foods hasn't done very well since Amazon bought them. Um, and you know, the magic question was, were they going to invent a more successful grocery concept in Amazon Fresh? And then this quarter, they answered that question. No. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. and they essentially said, uh, we haven't found anything differentiated enough in the Amazon fresh stores to make us want to scale them rapidly. We haven't given up on grocery and we're, we're going to continue to work on it and roll something new out. Um, but we're for sure pulling back on our, um, growth strategy for this f- current fresh concept. And so, so, you know, it sounds like, Hey, they, they definitely don't think they've got brick and mortar figured out between fresh and whole foods. Um, and on delivery last year, you know, they started charging, uh, even for prime members, they started charging for delivery at, uh, Whole Foods. And, um, that, like, I, I have a hypothesis that that dramatically put a crimp in their, their grocery e-commerce sales. Um, although in a lot of places in the country, groceries are delivered by fresh, not by Whole Foods. So this quarter, they also announced that they're adding a delivery fee, even if you're a prime member for uh fresh grocery delivery. So there there is no free grocery delivery option at Amazon um you know which in my mind puts them at a pretty significant disadvantage vis-a-vis Instacart, Walmart and Kroger that are all aggressively acquiring customers with offers right now. Yeah. Interesting. So grocery seems like a tough category. A place where like Amazon has put some serious effort in and it has not won yet, has not figured it out. Yeah. Cool. One of the other things that's weighing heavily on the minds of Amazon shareholders is the AWS computing platform. Uh, saw its growth really dip below 20%. All the cloud providers are feeling this. Uh, Google, Microsoft. I think Google has laid off a bunch of the people leading their cloud effort. Uh, Microsoft, uh, Azure uh, is under a bunch of pressure as well. Uh, and what's happening is as we hit some economic headwinds, the users of these cloud infrastructures are lots of startups that have venture capital and VC rounds are, are getting few and far between. So they are reducing their loads and they're trading down. Uh, you know, one of the things you can do on these platforms is have a machine with a certain compute horsepower. You can kind of say, ah, you know, maybe I'll go down a couple of rungs on the ladder of compute horsepower there and, and save a little bit. And, um, so, so it's a, an area where companies are looking to save money very quickly because you're not locked into a certain tier or anything like that, like you would be with some software as a service platforms. Yeah, um, I think, uh, not to give you credit, but I think you were one of the first people I saw talking about that phenomenon. And then it became a big thing. I think like like Twitter announced that they were slashing 75% of their Salesforce.com seats. And it just seemed like in the same way that like, you know, middle America, when, when budgets get tight, you know, everybody looks at their recurring spending and cuts all these, you know, apps they accidentally uh, signed up for on the app store. And in the same way, it feels like every company in America is like going on a SaaS diet right now. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I like to coin phrases. Uh, we famously coined Shipageddon on the show. Uh, I call it SaaS bloat. So uh, when you wake up one day and you look around your company and you've got 200 different SaaS platforms that you're paying, it's only $30 a seat a month, but there's, uh, you know, a thousand employees using it and you got 200 of them that uh, I can't do the math on that, but it adds up very quickly. So, so a lot of companies are right sizing um, their SaaS budgets. Uh, one of the interesting beneficiaries of this uh, was uh, the Microsoft Azure platform had pressure but the um, the Office 365 has done amazing because what happens is people say, well, I'm using Slack, Dropbox, um, and, you know, maybe maybe one of the Google platforms. And, you know, and I also have Office 365. Well, if you start to reconcile this, you can drop Dropbox for uh, OneNote uh, and no, not drive. OneNote. No, drive. Not, uh, no, that's Google. No, what, you're right. OneDrive. OneDrive, yeah. <laughs> and I can drop, you know, Slack for, uh, they have their own teams and then uh, Zoom for teams. And then so so Microsoft, because they've got one of the most fullest suites and almost everyone has Microsoft um, uh, because of Office kind of packed in there, they're, they're a huge beneficiary of that 
SAS bloat, uh, interestingly. And I think it was enough to offset the, the, the downgrades they saw in Azure. Yeah. Um, super interesting. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the interesting things that when you're in these weird economic times, when these companies release their numbers, it's late enough into the next quarter. So this all came out kind of mid February, uh, that they can give a little color and one of the, on the current color quarter. So they're talking about Q4 results, but then sometimes they will drop a little bit. What we're already, what we're seeing kind of right now. Um, so they did, they did talk about AWS, um, had kind of bottomed out at a 17% growth rate or something like that, mid teens. Um, so Wall Street took that positively. They also said, you know, they said we're seeing, uh, you know, really improved efficiencies in the retail business, which I think Wall Street took to mean they feel like they're at this right balance now of transportation warehouses and all those things that they had to shed. It feels, they feels like they're, they're done based on kind of like what they're seeing. Um, now there's always this caveat that that's, they've only seen 45 days of the quarter. So, so who knows what the back half of that looks like? Um, the real bright spot, uh, and this is interesting because there's this theme going on in the economy where services are, are, are kind of growing much faster than, than goods. Um, and, uh, at Amazon, the prime service, uh, grew pretty dramatically. It, it grew 17% over a year in acceleration from last quarter's 14%. So, so Wall Street found that really interesting. And, and I think, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know why people are picking Prime. I think some consumers are going through a reconciliation with their streaming platforms and they're kind of just like that Microsoft example. They're saying, well, if I go to Prime, I get Prime video and I can get access to my Yellowstone through there and some other things. And that's probably good enough. Maybe I'll turn off. I don't know. There's a bazillion of these things now. Um, so, but, but in any case, Wall Street was really pleased with this because there's been a lot of talk at when does Amazon hit prime saturation? Uh, well, you don't hit saturation if you you have an acceleration of growth like that. So, so that was, you know, a couple of the positives in the quarter there. Um, that, but interestingly enough, uh, and you, you probably know the ads part. I think it had to get another blockbuster business because they're, they continue to benefit from that first party you know, all this effectively the biggest retail media network out there. Um, and I know you think a lot about these retail media networks, but uh, that was a gift from our friends at Apple to Amazon. So, so that, that continues to be the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, the rate of growth did slow, right? So they were in the like thirties and 40% a year that it was growing. And I want to say it only grew 20% in Q4 um, year over year, which again, faster than AWS and still quite fast. Uh, but for 12 months, that means they sold $32.7 billion worth of ads. Um, and if you assume that ads are about 75% gross margin, um, that means that the ad business contributed $25 billion in earned income. Um, and AWS uh, last year contributed $22 billion in earned income. So, uh, you're, you know, you basically end up with... Uh, um, retail media networks contributing more to the bottom line at Amazon, even than AWS, which mm -hmm. they're both great businesses. Um, yeah, I think the seventy-five percent is um, uh, aggressive. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think it, I don't understand why it's like almost not a hundred percent. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I used to use a higher number, and then I saw some like industry guys that uh, like felt like there's more overhead in there, and there are a lot of salespeople. Um, yeah. you know, which don't, don't, you know, scale more linearly. So, so in, uh, I kind of fell in line with some other analysts and dropped it down to that 75%. Um, yeah. but, but however you slice it, like I'm pretty confident it's the most profitable business at Amazon and still like, although it's slowing down slightly, it's still, still certainly growing. So that was interesting. Uh, one that I haven't got my head around yet. Um, and I feel like you used to do this math yourself, uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, working on a couple of different models for what total US GMV did for Amazon. And it's not completely trivial because we know what the first party sales were. We know what the, the, uh, the units were. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to make some assumptions to kind of convert those units into a GMV and the, and the mix of third party is different than the mix of first party. Um, yeah. But the but the reason that's interesting is like by most models um 
you know, it, uh, it, it was not a huge growth year for GMV for Amazon. Um, and so again, I don't have a, a official estimate yet, but like, let's assume they grew, uh, like 10%. Um, the fees that they charged third party sellers grew 14%. Um, so the, the fees they're being able to get out of the third party marketplace is almost certainly growing faster than the third party marketplace. And that's because they're able to raise a bunch of rates. Uh, and our friends at marketplace pulse did some math and they feel that on average, the average third party seller on, on Amazon, when you add up all the selling costs between FBA, uh, and, uh, and, uh, advertising, um, that the average, uh, take rate is now 50%. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, I always remind, I mean, Amazon is a good place to sell. Like I'm not saying to anyone that they shouldn't use Amazon as part of their mix. Um, but I get asked all the time if I should just skip, a, uh, any other channel and just exclusively rely on Amazon. And to me, that's a huge mistake because Amazon's rightly so going to optimize the profit for them. And they're very good at that. <laughs> um, and so they're, you know, they're, they're taking a lot of margin out of uh, third party selling because there's a long line of people waiting behind every third party seller that want to sell that same stuff. Yeah. You got to have a blended approach and, and kind of leverage it to sell the right thing at the right time in the right channel. Exactly. Someone should start a company that does that, but we'll talk about that on another podcast. Yeah. If only we knew an entrepreneur. <laughs> He's busy uh, car washing right now. Exactly. Uh, cool. That's the Amazon report. Anything, any other earnings you found interesting? Yeah. Uh, so Amazon reported pretty early this year. I don't know if that was strategic or just how the calendar fell. Um, but now we are starting to get all of the more traditional retailers. Um, and so I want to say uh, we're recording this on Thursday. Tuesday, Walmart and Home Depot reported. Tomorrow morning, Target's going to report. Um, so we're starting to get all the, the Q4 sales data from the big retailers. Um, a bunch of, uh, specialty brands, like a lot of the apparel vans, VF and, uh, folks have already reported and there is emerging a pretty clear picture. So maybe before we do the clear picture, I'll just recap Walmart's Q4. Um, and I tried to channel my inner Scott because Scott and I are the perfect yin and yang. Uh, Scott is a, you know, former public company CEO and savvy investor. And he cares a lot about how these companies perform against expectations and what happens to their, their valuations. Uh, and I just care how much stuff they sold. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so I feel it's funny. We both look at uh, like all these earnings through different lenses. So through your lens, I feel like Walmart was mixed. I think you'd call it a beat and lower. Um, because earnings exceeded analyst expectations, they came in at 1.71 uh, uh, per share, and the and the analyst target was 1.51, so that's a pretty good beat. Uh, revenue came in at 164 billion for the quarter, and the expectation was 159 billion, so another good beat. Um, but on the bad news, uh, I think analysts uh, are were hoping for uh, a guidance of like five or 6% growth for the year. And Walmart uh, uh, gave a two to two and a half percent guidance for the year. Um, and so basically the story was we had a solid Q4 and a solid 2022, uh, but we're expecting things to get more difficult and more lean in 2023. And they, you know, overtly said we saw spending slow down in the fourth quarter. We saw a shift in the mix that they were, sh uh, c consumers were trading down, uh, to lower cost products. They were shifting from wants to needs. And in Walmart's mix, those needs are a lot less profitable. So they're selling more grocery and less electronics and toys and home goods and stuff like that. Um, and so the, both the, the guidance for revenue and especially the guidance for profit, uh, at Walmart were, were lower. And that to me exactly echoes a lot of the other earnings we heard, like the apparel guys. Their guidance was awful and their, their, st their stocks just tanked. Um, Home Depot actually had like a really soft Q4 because they said spending slowed down at the beginning of Q4. So they, they missed their, their earnings expectations for Q4 and they had a low guidance, but almost every retailer I've seen report earnings has reported lower than anticipated, uh, uh, 
or has has made a lower than hoped for guidance for 2023. So retailers are not super bullish on 2023. Um, from a pure sales standpoint, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, I try to just to compare apples to apples. Walmart's an international company. Um, you know, with two big retail concepts in the U.S. and a bunch of other countries, I try to pull out like just Walmart sales in the U.S. and their same store sales. The three years of the pandemic, uh, 2020, 2021 and 2022, they grew 8.6%, 6.4% and 6.6%. Average retail growth is 4.1%. So they, uh, significantly exceeded the industry average for all three of those years. Uh, but the industry also did much better for all three of those years. So the industry grew at 7.8, 14.4 and 6.9. So basically Walmart slightly outperformed the retail industry in two of the three years and underperformed retail in 2021. Um, but solid growth across all three years. And then Walmart is one of the nice retailers that break out their e-commerce growth separately, which I suspect is because it's usually pretty robust. Um, a lot of other companies have stopped reporting e-commerce and you can speculate why that is <laughs> that they don't <laughs> report it. Um, but Walmart e-commerce growth has been, uh, very robust during the pandemic. So they grew 69% in 2020, 11% in 21 and 12% in 22. And that is, you know, their 69% was against an industry growth of 42%. Uh, and then, you know, this year they grew 12% against an e-commerce industry growth of 7.4%. So, um, like pretty good e-commerce growth all the, all the way across on a three-year stack. That means Walmart grew or, uh, Walmart grew a hundred percent over those three years, uh, their e-commerce business in the U S. Uh, the, the e-commerce industry grew 81%. So Walmart's like the second largest e-commerce site in the United States and they outperformed the industry on growth. Uh, Amazon probably did not outperform the industry. Like, uh, like the, the best forecast is Amazon probably grew 56% over those three years. So Walmart, not surprising, they're much more than Amazon and e-commerce, but they grew much faster than Amazon. Uh, eBay ends up being the big loser over the three years. They only grew 17%, so kind of the underperformer. And then just for sake of comparison, Etsy grew 150% over the pandemic. Shopify grew 229%. And then this apparel company I talk a lot about uh, is crazy uh, uh, Shein, uh, grew 900% during the pandemic and some of their financial data leaked last month and their internal forecast for their U.S. revenue in 2025, uh, exceeds eBay's forecast for all revenue. So that's an, uh, an apparel retailer that's going to sell more stuff online than all of eBay. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. The world changes. Do they Any have of that infrastructure in the U.S. like to do shipping and stuff or does it all come straight from China? The, for Shein, um, I believe that, uh, they may have announced that they acquired some, uh, some sorting centers or some fulfillment center space in the U.S., but I don't think it's come online yet. So I think at the moment it's all being shipped abroad, but I'm not certain on that. Wow. That's crazy. It's a lot of international shipments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like it's moving. And then the speculation is, you know, Shein in a lot of markets is a marketplace. Um, and they are not a marketplace in the U.S. yet, but a lot of people are speculating that they're going to launch a marketplace this year. And, uh, and especially if you, if you think they're, they're bigger overall than eBay and, you know, they're the biggest apparel uh, reseller in the U.S., online or offline. Um, like they're, they're on a, on a tear. It's pretty interesting. And, uh, we'll cover it on a different show, but like their model about I, what I think is most interesting about Shein is, there are no merchants. They're they're literally getting their product ideas from TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. And having a marketplace will be good. It'll be another piece of data to feed into this kind of viral, crazy, fast fashion engine that they've created. A hundred percent. And it's interesting, you know, Amazon gets accused of doing that scary. in a in a non competitive yeah. way. But and and they may or may not be doing that. But if they are doing it, they're doing it with people. Like, you know, uh Shein is doing it with Skynet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool any other uh news uh, on the e-commerce front um well so those are the big earnings I, again there's you know we're gonna see a bunch of the other big box uh retailers report over the next couple of weeks so we'll i'll put together a more complete picture of of uh who the winners and losers were like it's it's mapping if you look at the u.s department of commerce data and you see the categories that won and lost 
Um, like shockingly, and I, I would have gone these predictions wrong at the beginning of the pandemic, but do you know what category like was about the best specialty category to be in over the last three years? It was sporting goods. <laughs> sporting goods. Yeah. Which I <laughs> would not have thought. Right. And Dix is, you know, uh, had a like Dick Sporting Goods has had a particularly good run. And in fact, they, they bought Moose Jaw from, from Walmart today. Um, the, uh, and the worst category to be in in the last three years by far is consumer electronics. And, um, so spoiler alert, Best Buy hasn't reported this quarter yet, but, uh, all indications are that it's not going to be a, uh, a rosy, uh, quarter for Best Buy. Yeah, and I saw Home Depot had uh, either announced or pre-warned that things were getting kind of soft. And, and so they've had a tremendous run since 2020. So at some point, people had to run out of money for upgrading their houses. Looks like we may be at a tipping point there, too. Yeah, and I would categorize them as kind of one of these middle ones. They had a phenomenal first half of the pandemic, and now it appears to be slowing down. Um, and, I, I would, you know, some of the furniture guys are in that same boat. Um, and so that... That, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they net out over the three years. Um, like I think they're going to net out to have done better than average, but not, um, but not amazingly. Right. And in the middle of the pandemic, we were all saying like, oh man, these are, you know, Home Depot might be the biggest winner of the pandemic because <laughs> every, everybody yeah. redid their backyard. Um, so the, uh, that's all the earning stuff I had. The other, like kind of pool of interesting news that I'm going to ask a lot about right now all centers around social commerce. And what's interesting is there's like news in diametrically different directions. Um, so TikTok, uh, which is not the biggest social network, but it's certainly the fastest growing social network. And it's, it, it's, you know, it has prodigious, uh, engagement at this point. Uh, TikTok launched, uh, they've had some native shopping before, but they launched, uh, a native shops feature. Um, and, it, I would characterize it as the, the most robust feature set for shopping on a social platform that I've seen yet. Um, so, uh, stores can have their own shop. They can aggregate their own catalog. Um, and it's everything is not just a buy now, which is normally how social networks do it. Um, they have a persistent cart and you, you can add multiple items to a cart. Um, you can change all the attributes of those items, which is often a problem with other native checkouts. Uh, you can get a delivery forecast. You get tax calc. You get, uh, promo codes. You get all these things that like historically social networks skip. And then a feature I would have never expected. It's a multi vendor universal cart. So you can actually buy from multiple TikTok shops in a single transaction and they take PayPal and Apple pay. So um, I would characterize that as a surprisingly robust native feature to get people buying on TikTok. Um, and so if you just saw that news, you'd say, Oh, that's the future is, you know, uh, people are discovering stuff on TikTok instead of in the shelf uh, in the aisle at a store. And now they're just going to buy it right on TikTok. But in the, the same month, uh, our friends at Meta, turned off their shopping tab on both Facebook and Instagram and said, uh, Hey, we tried it and we don't, we don't think that's how people want to shop. Um, and then I guess one other, uh, uh, selfish piece of, of, uh, content in this whole genre, a lot of the hype in the U S when I get clients asking me about like the buzzy thing in social commerce, it's a live streaming commerce. And, and there, there are now a hundred live streaming vendors. I get pitches every single day from someone that like has reinvented shopping. Um, and, uh, it, it's all this live streaming commerce, which is huge in China, uh, but has not taken off in the U S. And so I got tired of re uh, repeating my same concerns. So I wrote a Forbes article that, uh, got pretty popular, you know, talking about how I felt like live streaming commerce in particular, was uh, wildly overhyped and it, it got a lot of um, reactions. Some people violently disagreed. Most of those were live streaming vendors um, and a, a lot of uh, live, a lot of veterans in the space, including like brands that sell abroad where live streaming is big and in the U S like chimed in and said, yeah, what Jason's saying is exactly what we're seeing. Um, and what it boils down to is there's, there's some genres where live streaming makes a lot of sense. And I think some of those are genres you shop in a lot, like collectibles and 
um, uh, unique items and things like that. But like, if there's not huge product scarcity, the other main reason people shop in live streams is for deep discounts. And so like you can almost replace the word live stream with flash sale um, for kind of a similar kind of reach. Like all of this live streaming commerce in China is, and it's 40% off for the next 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that, uh, the, those, that kind of extreme deal making like hasn't, you know, had legs in the U S and so not surprising that, live streaming hasn't taken off to the same level, but um, I'd be curious, are you like, so when I talk to clients, it's an open question right now. Like what's the future of social commerce? Is it important? Is it not important? If it is important, like, is it going to happen on the social platforms like TikTok through native checkout? Like does target need to, to have their own TikTok shop um, or is uh, social a great tool for discovery? And there's lots of ways to connect that that social discovery with traditional e-commerce experiences. And you know, I I I don't think there's a clear answer yet in the U.S., but it's a super interesting question. Yeah, I think I think like China, it's going to center around the influencers. If influencers had a platform, then that's where it would be driven from. Like if the Kardashians you know, had, had some kind of a platform of some kind. Um, they have a big enough audience. They could direct that audience to the platform and do things. It just doesn't really exist in an integrated fashion, right? You're in, you can't really do it on Instagram because you don't have the checkout and it just hasn't come together. Amazon can't do it. Cause it's like kind of complicated to bring the influencer over there and they may not have like the right thing. The influencer wants to sell. Know. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't I, really I do think it is a different story if you're a if you're a mega influencer that has a huge audience and you have a a relatively limited catalog, right? So Kylie Jenner is a perfect example. Like, I think she could do a lot of business on uh, Instagram and TikTok, but like, that's a wildly different problem than a wholesaler that has five million, ten million, eighty million uh, SKUs in their catalog. Yeah. And what what they should be doing on on social networks? I think it can work for it works for collectibles because you have this kind of like high affinity audience. It works for beauty and apparel, and then I think that's kind of it. Yeah, what I guess, and you know, fair enough for retailers to have broad ambitions. But if you look at China, a lot of this like social commerce and e commerce, like it, a bunch of it happens on. Social networks like uh, uh, Daoyun, which is TikTok there, and uh, WeChat, which I guess loosely similar to, t- to Twitter. Um, but a lot of it does happen on platforms owned by the retailer, right? So Taobao Live, which is you know essentially a site owned by by you know the the Amazon of China, um, is a big social platform where a lot of people go just to watch short form videos and buy a lot of stuff. Um, and so, you know, of course, if you're a retailer, that's what you'd want. Like you don't want to be disintermediated by the social platform and have to pay a fee and not know who the customer is. You, you want the customer to come to you. Um, but it, like, it seems like recreating that model in the U S would be super hard. And the, I, I would argue the retailer that's tried the hardest to do it is Amazon. Um, and Amazon has all of the features. Like they, uh, they have a, they, they had Amazon Live for a while. Now they have Amazon Inspire. Um, and they have a lot of influencers creating unique short form video content with shoppable, uh, ads in it on the Amazon platform. But I would say the early indications are that, uh, it's not organically working. Like, you know, it's not drawing a bunch of people that just want to doom stroll on Amazon instead of TikTok. And, Creators aren't going there because they're making a bunch of money in the normal economic model. What what it seems like is happening is Amazon is paying like extra bounties to get creators to try the platform. And they the creator goes to that platform as long as that bounty exists. But as soon as that bounty expires and they, they fall into the normal economic model, the creator's returning to TikTok because they can make more money on TikTok than they can on on Inspire. Yeah, the whatnot platform is pretty fascinating because it has like, um, yeah. So it's got a persistent store on one side of the screen, and then you're watching the talent, and then 
you know, they can do, they can sell things like a variety of different ways. They can run an auction. They can, um, they can do a limited, almost like a QVC. I've got 10 of these and when they're gone, they're gone. And on the screen, it does a countdown. They can do a, they do like a markdown. I think you would probably call it a filings basement kind of thing. You know, that where it, the longer it's there, the more discount there is. So yeah. it's kind of counterintuitively, <laughs> you're kind of like, you're, you're kind of like waiting, waiting, and then you see it yeah, go you're fast and jumping. Yeah. Yeah. It's a game right. of discount chicken. And then, uh, you know, so it's really fascinating how they, you know, they give the, 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 the seller, um, who is largely, you know, an influencer, so many tools to, to sell and they're all integrated. So once you have your, your payment information in there, you know, you, you get really sucked into the game. And I think that's really what it's going to take. Like, that's what you're missing on, you know, any of these TikTok may have it. I haven't seen their platform, but you know, certainly Instagram or Facebook reels or YouTube, they don't have that level of integration. Even the Amazon stuff I've seen has been kind of not super innovative from, it was like a link, you know, feels affiliate. It's not like an integrated into the video thing. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. I think some of those, uh, nichier experiences are a lot more interesting at the moment than any of the super mainstream ones, but whatnot is certainly interesting to look at. I do think like, uh, network, uh, without any vowels in it is like a interesting flavor of live shopping, which seems like it works in some genres. Um, so yeah, I think some of those, those sites are interesting. One thing I would point out about all of those is, uh, their definition of influencer is maybe a little different than like the tradition. Like when we say influencer, I think a lot of people think of mega influencers, right? And they think of these, these superstars with millions of followers, but, uh, like, on most of those, these platforms, the, the influencer is someone with a much smaller following. So it's much more of a long tail influencer or a micro influencer. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I, I feel like this is going to be an interesting uh, space to follow throughout all of, uh, 2023. But I do, I do think, uh, it's going to be an interesting year in retail in 2023 because I, I think a lot of retailers are, are worried at least that the first half is not going to be robust. And so you're seeing a lot of shift in investment on retailers from kind of like, you know, mega growth and customer acquisition activities to like operational efficiencies and improve our, our profit and our short-term returns uh, type activities. Yeah. Um, any, uh, I guess you continue to get pitches from the live stream guys or are they on to you now? Uh, yeah, no. So again, you know, you can totally pan them on, uh, in an article and I, you know, the internet has a short memory, so I still get, get <laughs> lots of pitches and, you know, one of them will be amazing. Right. So it's, it's hard. Like you want to listen to all these pitches because someone will, there's some entrepreneur out there that'll have some amazing new idea and odds are like, I'll get jaded and cynical and ignore them and miss it. Um, but the signal and the noise ratio is, is pretty tough because you, you will have to listen, you know, listen to a lot of like, uh, you know, poorly articulated pitches to get to that one good one. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you get that from an investment perspective all the time. Uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's hard to pick the, if I've learned anything, it's very humbling trying to pick winners and losers. So I have given up on that. Smart. <laughs> Everyone's a winner. Everyone gets a trophy, Jason. I love it. Participation. That's the modern year. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I do, uh, want to put some fewers out there, a topic I keep getting asked for that I feel like we need to be doing a deep dive on. Um, and I I feel like it's both overhyped and legitimate at the same time is all this, uh, generative AI and its use cases in commerce, right? You know, so obviously the, the most buzzy one at the moment is chat GBT, but, uh, or GPT, but the, um, there's actually a lot of super interesting tools uh, that are uh, that retailers are are starting to legitimately use to to um, get more operationally efficient, and I think that might be an interesting topic for a deep dive if you're up for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, guilty pleasure confession: I am addicted to Midjourney. I love playing with the generative um, visual AIs. They're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, I think they are super interesting, and I uh, I'll, we'll tease the deep dive. Um, so the interesting thing about the Sheehan apparel model is they identify a trend and they have a fast turn factory that can make 
literally like a first run of that apparel item in a day. So a day after they see a trend on TikTok, they've got a hundred up for sale. Um, and if those hundred sell, then they make 10,000, right? And so it's, it's this like super fast iteration. Um, and you know, again, not trying to shill for Shein because there's a lot of challenges with the model too, but, uh, that I have heard that Shein launches about 10,000 SKUs a day. So a day to put that in perspective, uh, fast fashion like H&M launched 20,000 SKUs a year and slow fashion like the Gap launched 4,000 SKUs a year. So 10,000 a day is, is game changing. Um, but it's super hard to do. And so, you know, what's super interesting about the generative uh, AI for images is, if you're really just doing a one day test to see if there's demand for some new apparel, like you can generate amazing images of apparel styles without making the apparel. You can put it up on an e-commerce site. You can collect a pre-order and then you can make it tomorrow if it gets enough demand. Hmm. And so you're yeah. starting to see people like skip the photography altogether and use generative AI to do like concept testing. Um, and for sure, if you're on an apparel site and you're shopping for, uh, an outfit that's coming from multiple vendors, you can use the generative image, uh, AI image, uh, generation to render all three of those apparel items from different providers on the same mannequin or increasingly, uh, on a virtual avatar of the shopper, right? So at Walmart, you can see all that apparel like on your own body, which no apparel looks better on my body than it does on the mannequin. So in my case, it doesn't work, but I could see the appeal for others. Yeah, it's a good inventory turns to to not make something and then sell it. Yes, exactly. It's like moving <laughs> one step. Yeah. Um, so, and in the apparel where they make a lot of that clothes and can never sell it, and then it goes into a landfill, like you know, it helps with the ecology of the industry. So, uh, so super interesting stuff. Uh, the progress is happening super fast. So uh, it's it's exciting. Um, but Scott, that's probably a good place to leave it for today. Cause once again, we've used up our allotted time. Uh, as always, if this show is helpful, we sure would love it. If you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review and, you know, get ready to say hi to me at a couple of these upcoming shows. Yep. And when you're flying on your plane, start writing some uh, notes for, we'll do a deep dive on AI machine learning. Cause we are getting a lot of questions. Thanks everyone for listening tonight. And until next time. Happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing. Subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 